are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinus. No, I'm sorry. This is Wednesday uh, afternoon or evening. Uh, so we're studying the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and we're picking up this evening with step number 15 on purity and chastity. And uh, we're getting into some wonderful paragraphs here where um, he, along with some of the other fathers, break down for us the how temptations begin to manifest themselves. And it's probably some of the most helpful reading uh, that we can do in this for the spiritual struggle. Um, it's not simply speaking of the sins themselves, but how we combat them and how we can recognize them as approaching us, in particular the thoughts or ideas that are associated with them, and uh, when we've allowed ourselves to be drawn in to them as well. And so it's, I hope it'll be as helpful for you as it has been for me over the, over the years. And so we're picking up with paragraph 72 on page 150. Paragraph 72. It is not surprising for the immaterial to struggle with the immaterial, but it is truly surprising for one inhabiting matter and in conflict with this hostile and crafty matter to put to flight immaterial foes. So John is acknowledging the fact that um, it's uh, an extraordinary thing uh, for us not only to deal with our own appetites and desires, and uh, especially as they've been touched by our sin, uh, but also to engage in a spiritual battle with spiritual foes, immaterial foes, with demons. And, uh, and I think part of the reason that he says this is both a warning not to trust simply in our own strength, uh, but also speaking to us about the uh, nature of the grace of God that we are raised up through that grace uh, to even be able to conquer uh, demons. And so in a sense, raised up higher uh, by virtue of our union and communion with him. Number 73, the good Lord shows his great care for us in that the shamelessness of the feminine sex is checked by shyness as with a sort of bit. For if the woman were to run after the man, no flesh would be saved. <laughs> uh, sort of a curious thing, but uh, I was wondering how I would talk about this today. And 
Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know. Other than the, the thought that came to mind was that there is a kind of modesty and restraint that John is saying here, that if women were driven uh, in the same way that men were, are, are by their uh, appetites, in particular, uh, that those tied to sensuality, then we, were, we would certainly be doomed. That there, uh, if there is a, a no there or boundaries that are set up or a bit of restraint that whatever it's rooted in, he says shyness here, I'd be interested in what the Greek word really is, I'll, I'll have to do some research on that uh, to find what it might be. Uh, but uh, if modesty, something that would uh, uh, restrain uh, that appetite in themselves, in themselves, but also in others that assist us in the battle, all would be lost, he's saying, if, uh, uh, you know, both were driven equally. And I, I think, you know, we're sort of coming to a time maybe where this doesn't strike as true for us because, uh, you know, in our society, uh, I think uh, everybody is so affected, I think, by the hypersensuality that we find in our culture that there, you know, are no boundaries or sense of, of modesty or, or purity uh, that uh, help restrain us. Number 74, uh, the discerning fathers have defined that assault is one thing, converse another, consent another, captivity another, struggle another, passion so-called in the soul another. And these blessed men define assault as a simple conception or image of something encountered for the first time, which has entered the heart. So here, John uh, is doing what I had uh, discussed earlier. He's beginning to describe for us the, the development of a passion. And seeing this movement is ever so helpful. Uh, I think the, the more that we begin to still the mind and the heart and be attentive to our thoughts and the movements uh, within our own hearts, that we're able to see this actually taking place. And so we can engage in the battle uh, more vigorously. So an assault is simply an image uh, or an idea being put before the mind and our being uh, open to receiving it and having it enter into our heart. And so we are afflicted at this point. And most of the fathers, including John, says, you know, there's no sin in this necessarily, uh, that the temptation can come from the evil one and or from things outside of us uh, that enters into our heart, but we are not uh, complicit in it in any, in any way, nor necessarily welcoming. Converse is conversation with what has presented itself, accompanied by passion or dispassion. So converse, we can begin as, as a word to have a little dialogue with the thoughts associated with the particular temptations. And uh, our responsibility lies whether or not there is passion or dispassion. If we uh, have ordered our appetites and desires uh, towards their appropriate end, and if we have become vigilant uh, through the ascetic life and the embrace of God's grace, then uh, these kinds of thoughts are easily set aside. Uh, 
but if we're open to them, then the conversation is what where we begin to welcome those thoughts into the mind and the heart. And so we become more and more complicit, John is telling us at this point. Uh, the sin might not be grave uh, at this point, but there can be sin in it if we openly welcome such thoughts into our minds and our heart. And consent, he says, is the bending of the soul to what has been presented to it, accompanied by delight. So not only do we enter into this conversation, with it uh, and uh, begin to uh, welcome it, but we delight in it. So almost a bending over in order to lift it, it, something up, he's saying, that we stoop down to these lower or baser needs and pick it up and begin to run with it, as it were, and to be driven by our delight in it. But captivity is a forcible and involuntary rape of the heart or a permanent association with what has been encountered, which destroys the good order of our condition. So we are in a situation where we are confronted in such a vigorous way, waves of thoughts, images uh, that come to us or things that we have uh, allowed ourselves to encounter. And so uh, say if we are watching a movie and there is explicit material in it, uh, then these images are going to force themselves into our minds and our imagination. And, uh, and so even though we're forced involuntarily, uh, in some ways uh, it can destroy still the dis the good order or condition within us, that we've allowed ourselves to be vulnerable or open to this. We've exposed ourselves perhaps willingly to it. Sometimes it's unwilling, unwillingly, depending upon you know, what we are, uh, uh, what we come into contact with. But I think most often uh, we accept these things quite freely. Struggle, according to their definition, is power equal to the attacking force, which is either victorious or else suffers defeat according to the soul's desire. So if our desire for God is great, then we are going to fight a fierce battle uh, against these thoughts. And so immediately begin to take up the Jesus prayer uh, or to engage in prostrations fasting, spiritual reading, uh, anything that we can do uh, to overcome the, mo the movement of our thoughts. And in some ways, we might have to do violence to ourselves and, and uh, breaking away from what we're doing. Uh, we take up the, the Jesus prayer, perhaps we prostrate ourselves repeatedly uh, for a long period of time until the thoughts begin to dissipate within us. And uh, I think this is helpful because we often don't look at the spiritual battle in this way, uh, where it is actually a battle and that we are engaged in a fight and we're called to struggle with these thoughts. And I came across an interesting little quote right before, uh, I was doing a little reading before the group began. And uh, it was an interesting one. 
And I, I think it's from Mark the Ascetic, uh, who's one of my favorites from the first volume of the Philokalia. Uh, he's thought to be a disciple of St. John Chrysostom, but he said, those who always by choice incline to sensual pleasures, refrain from doing what lies within their power on the grounds that they lack help. It's an interesting thought. And so they will tell themselves that, uh, you know, I cannot engage in this battle. I'm overcome, uh, that I don't have the strength to engage in this battle. And so basically they are telling themselves a lie. Uh, they are uh, excusing themselves from the battle, telling themselves in their minds that the grace isn't there or that the struggle is just so great that uh, there's no winning this battle. So there's no use fighting whatsoever. And uh, when Jesus is calling individuals in the gospel, if you remember, he uses that phrase, they all begin to excuse themselves. And we've talked about this in previous groups that in the Latin, it comes from ex causa, free oneself from the charge. And so often when it comes to spiritual warfare, uh, we can do exactly that, free ourselves from the charge of what is required of us uh as we take hold of the grace of god that we cannot sit by idly that we have to uh wage this battle constantly and take hold of the grace that's given to us and not only when we're overwhelmed by thoughts or images and ideas uh but constantly engaging in continuous prayer doing spiritual readings and uh, engaging in other ascetical practices as well in order to strengthen us and protect us from such onslaughts. And so often we can be responsible uh, for being overwhelmed. And when we are overwhelmed, uh, we can often lay it at God's feet. Well, I, I didn't have any help. You know, God is, you know, uh, why, why is God letting me be overcome by this? And so St. Mark the ascetic, you know, puts it out there clearly, you know, sometimes it's, we're just making an excuse for not being willing to engage in, in this fight and fight a fierce battle. And, um, you, you know, I think when I entered into the faith, uh, I never heard spiritual warfare use, the term spiritual warfare used until I began reading the, the fathers. And I don't know if there was something about the imagery that seemed unappealing, uh, but, uh, you know, I think back in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the centering prayer, and we've talked about uh, some of the critique of it is that it leapfrogged over this ascetic struggle to purify the heart. And so we have to recapture it. It's present both in the Eastern and Western tradition. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the great books uh, among Western writers is by Lorenzo Scapoli uh, called Spiritual Warfare. It's superb uh, along the lines of the Desert Fathers. And, uh, and uh, but it's one of the few, I think, uh, that puts, puts it out there with this amount of clarity. Passion, 
he says, or they say, is preeminently that which for a long time nestles with persistence in the soul, forming therein a habit, as it were, by the soul's long-standing association with it, since the soul of its own free and proper choice clings to it. And so beautifully and clearly put that passion is a, a sin that has become habitual, that are repeatedly giving ourselves over to temptations that then lead to sin, uh, become so deeply rooted that it becomes a habit of mind and a habit of behavior. And so at times so deeply rooted that even when we do not desire it on one level, we're still drawn into it because the underlying attachment to it is still there uh, and has put down deep roots. And not only the attachment to the particular sin, but the things that lead to, to the sin as well. And, uh, and so when, uh, we've talked about this before, when things are sapling, so when something comes to us as an assault, uh, it's like that sapling that we can rip out of the ground. But once it has become a passion, a full-grown tree, and has put down deep roots, then it becomes much more difficult to deal with it and uh, can require you know, many years, if not decades, to overcome uh, its grip upon us and to develop the habit of virtue, a new habit of thought and, uh, and new things that we are attached to that push out our attachment to sin. And, uh, and, and so oftentimes it requires a radical reordering of our life, simplifying it, uh, being much more guarded about what we read, what we see on television, what we listen to, uh, but also our other spiritual practices that we become more, much more ordered in what we eat, sleep, anything that's tied to our appetites, uh, we want to have order toward God, but also in such a way that it humbles us in mind and body, that it leads to a greater clinging to God and to the life of prayer, uh, but it slows down the thoughts and also weakens those appetites in one measure or another. And uh, so if we're fasting, uh, we weaken the grip that food has upon us and strengthen our will in that regard. And so then when the assault comes to us in regards to sensuality, our will has been strengthened in some way, uh, but also that those appetites uh, often become humbled, as it were, weakened through the spiritual discipline of fasting. And so, so clearly put for us, I think, the development. Of all these states, he writes, the first is without sin, so the assault. The second, not always. But the third is sinful or sinless according to the state of the contestant. So the uh, converse can be sinful, certainly, that we can knowingly see the nature of the thought that is, comes before us. And we can engage in that con, uh, converse. And so players place ourselves in a near occasion of sin. Uh, the third consent uh, 
depends, he says, on the state of the contestant. So uh, a person might, uh, because of their, or their weakness, be drawn into it, or because something has, has them in such a grip that it is habitual, almost an addiction. And so the culpability for giving oneself over to that might be lessened not completely absent because we are responsible for the formation of our minds and our hearts. And so even when the passion is deeply rooted and our culpability for uh, falling into a particular sin that is tied to it, uh, it's still rooted in perhaps negligence in the spiritual life uh, for years or decades. And, uh, and so we have to seek to make reparation in the sense we have to seek to repair the wound by the grace that God offers us through the, the sacramental life, through confession, through Holy Communion, and then through everything that we've been given that are sources of grace for us uh, in the ascetical life. And again, I think we've moved away a little bit from this kind of language. Uh, and I, I think it... Uh, has had an effect upon the way that, again, we, we enter into this spiritual battle. Not only do we not engage in the struggle, but I think after the fall has taken place, there often isn't this sense of the need to make reparation, you know, not only to have the fir firm uh, and intent of, of amendment of life, but that through our certain spiritual practices, we would seek to strengthen ourselves but also heal the wounds that afflict us, to take hold of that grace of God in such a deep way uh, that we begin to experience greater freedom in the face of those thoughts. And that's, you know, when the battle can become, you know, it's very fierce. You know, if we're in our 20s before we hear any of this and we've been exposed to everything in the culture, and then all of a sudden you, you read about this and you think, oh my, you know, that I've been living a life that has been completely, uh, 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 you know, lacking in self-reflection in terms of what goes through my mind, the thoughts I have or the things that I expose myself to. So what do I do now? And how do I persevere uh, in my hope in God and hope in his mercy uh, in order that I might continue in that spiritual battle, even while I know great weakness, while I'm in the grip of something that has become habitual for me, it has become like an addiction. Uh, he goes on to say, struggle is the occasion of crowns or punishments. And so if we're completely lacking, uh, obviously, that our you know, responsibility for that is is great, that if we freely give ourselves over, uh, not only to the temptation, but to, to the delights that are often tied to them, then we bear the responsibility for that. But it's also crowns for us uh, as, as we engage in it fully, even if our whole day is spent in fighting off one thought after another, and we seem to be afflicted uh, that... Uh, you know, this is seen by God. And even if we fall and repent, 
day after day? Is it still seen by God as engaging in that struggle? That uh, repentance in and of itself is an act of faith in God and hope in his grace and mercy. And so John will later say, you know, that uh, he who sins daily and yet repents daily is uh, looked upon with joy by his guardian angel. That, uh, that repentance is always an expression of our, our faith in God. And this is important to remember, especially I think when, when certain uh, things have become almost what we would see more in or call in our day an addiction, when it, things have become a passion and have a deep hold on us, that we can fall into despondency, despair about the worth of engaging in the spiritual life at all. And so to hold on to our trust in the mercy of God and also the, the power of repentance to draw us through that, not of our own strength, but because it draws us back into that relationship with God and allows us to enter into the fray once more. Uh, captivity is judged differently according to whether it occurs at the time of prayer or at other times, whether in things indifferent, neither good nor bad, or in the case of evil thoughts. And so, you know, our, our mind might be taken captive in struggling against uh, temptations that come across us uh, like a wave, even in times of prayer. And uh, so certainly there would be less responsibility than that if we're engaging in uh, prayer and the evil one is seeking to disrupt that and so uh, begins to attack us uh, with greater ferocity. Uh, there's certainly something that's qualitatively different from that uh, than from a person who's indifferent about the spiritual life. And... Uh, isn't even necessarily aware of what's going on or, or care. And uh, certainly the responsibility would be much greater there. Uh, but passion is unequivocally condemned in every case and demands either corresponding repentance or future punishment. Therefore, he who regards the first assault dispassionately cuts off at a single blow all the rest which follow. So, you know, that if we are in the grip of a passion, it is our responsibility to, first and foremost, to turn to God, to repent, to ask his forgiveness, but also ask for his grace. Uh, not to do as St. Mark the ascetic said, to tell ourselves, well, this is simply impossible, or that God does not offer me help. Uh, because in and of itself, that is a lie. God is offering us help at every single moment. And all that we need to do is to turn the mind and the heart to him. And so confessors, spiritual directors should be emphasizing, uh, asking God even, if say if we lack the spirit of repentance, to be encouraging people to pray for it because of its significance. In fact, there are some uh, modern-day elders that say, pray for one thing and one thing alone, and that's repentance. 
because it is what uh, allows us to be drawn back into the arms of God. And so become open then to his healing grace and find strength to enter into the battle once again. It's our lack of repentance that keeps us in the grip of the evil one. And, uh, and uh, that, you know, does not bode well, I think, for our future salvation. And I think this is why we see Jesus speak so roughly uh, with the scribes and the Pharisees, for the, or with anyone who does not believe that they have sin or have a need for repentance. They are convinced in their mind that they've uh, achieved a level of righteousness, of sanctity before God, that uh, they do not have to ask his forgiveness. And, uh, you know, certainly there's a big difference between, you know, keeping the minutia of the law, you know, hand-washing codes, and, and uh, even in the sense of avoiding major sins. And uh, there's a big difference between that and uh, our capacity to turn away from God and others in the lack of love. That the fathers even saw uh, the forgetfulness of God as uh, adultery or idolatry, that our turning away from God in our thoughts and forgetting him is becomes self-worship or the worship of the things of this world. And so when we push God out to the margins, and we forget about him altogether, uh, that in and of itself can be a sinful sinful thing. And so we hear in the scripture that even the righteous man sins seven times a day. And symbolically, that means even the righteous man sins to perfection, you know, that there's always this need for us to be calling out to God uh, for, for mercy and to, to turn away from the, the ways that we neglect that relationship and the ways that we fail to love others. So uh, when we engage that first assault, uh, we, we can prevent ourselves from being drawn along. And so this is where we begin to understand why uh, the f fathers focus so much upon the, the, the battle being psychological and being rooted in the thoughts, logismoi, that this is where the battle is fought, it's where it's won or lost. And so to pray without ceasing, as Paul tells us, or to take every thought captive, this becomes our spiritual warfare. This is our asceticism, that we so love God that we so desire him, that we are constantly guarding the heart, knowing that we are the dwelling place of God, that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we seek to guard and protect that which is most precious and uh, what is holy and what has been born into the world, but has been born into us. And so as Joseph is the guardian of Mary and the, and the infant child Jesus. So we are to be the guardian and protector of all that is holy, born into our hearts. When we receive the Holy Eucharist, when we pray, uh, when, when we go to confession and receive the grace of the sacrament, it's at those times in particular, the saints tell us, to be most guarded because the demons 
will seek to attack us most ferociously after we've received that which is most precious. So right after we receive communion, uh, often we will find ourselves attacked and that can be very confusing and discombobulating for people like, well, why am I being attacked walking out of mass? Uh, and after having received communion, well, for, for the simple reason to derail us in the spiritual battle, but also in that relationship with God, to pull us out of that state of grace and into a state of sin. And so often they would counsel uh, engaging in greater spiritual disciplines, taking up greater devotions after having received the sacraments in order that uh, th that grace might become deeply rooted within us and that we might guard and protect what has been given to us. And uh, so, you know, when we think about keeping the Sabbath day holy, you know, when we prepare ourselves to receive Holy Communion, then, you know, we should, you know, rushing out the door, you know, to engage in sort of the entertainments of the day, or, you know, to get to sit before, you know, our worldly tabernacle, the television, and watch a football game. We're not necessarily engaging in that spiritual battle or being mindful of what the saints say, say to us, that if those are vulnerable times, they can be great times of grace for us, where we are strengthened in the spiritual battle. But if we do not guard and protect that which is precious, then it can be easily undermined. There are a couple comments here, so let me address them. Uh, see, Lawrence wrote, Pope Shenouda says, be aware then of the first step towards sin and run for your life. You are not stronger than Adam. He's such a great writer. Uh, Pope Shenouda, we had, we've mentioned him here in the past, The Life of Repentance and Purity. Uh, superb book. And yes, you know, so uh, run. The coward is the victor. And so whenever we see the approach of a temptation, not to engage it, but rather to turn towards Christ in prayer, not to think that we are stronger than Adam, uh, not to think that we, I think John Climacus has said in the previous group, not to think that we're stronger than David, King David, who uh, committed murder and then adultery. Uh, and, and so not to think our, ourselves stronger than what we really are. It's only by the grace of God that we are, are, if we have any virtue within us, it's only because that grace has been active within our hearts. Uh, Louise writes, would you say that repentance involves feeling pain for having hurt another? This pain thus becomes a stimulus to possibly prevent the future repetition of this sin. I would say absolutely. I think whenever uh, love is betrayed or a, that relationship is broken, that we would feel the pain of it uh, whenever we wound another. Uh, uh, in uh, sharp word or lack of love, we, we should fill that and it should be what leads us to repentance. This would be contrition, compunction, that we would feel uh, this kind of pain for having set the grace of God aside, you know, that for which he died for us and has poured out upon us, 
uh, and that we've uh, so soiled, as it were, the temple that we have become. And so part of our conversion is this remorse, this compunction. But what we find with the fathers is always this movement toward God, that the, the sorrow that we experience is not to lead us into despondency, because this is what the evil one would want, uh, that it is to lead us back toward God. So it's always relational for us. Even the, the deep pain that we would feel, the deep remorse that we would feel, is something to lead us back into the arms of God, uh, seeking his mercy and forgiveness. And so it's often called sorrowful joy, the, the Greek word that's used. Uh, uh, it's uh, also, there's a wonderful book by Irene Hasher called Panthos, if you want to, to read uh, about compunction uh, in a deeper way. Uh, but he really develops this beautifully about how important it is in the writings of the fathers that we keep this understanding of that word in, in our minds. And I, I think this is where in the West we can learn a lot, that often what is experienced in uh, falls is shame. And, you know, shame can be a powerful thing, and it can lead to this kind of remorse and repentance where we acknowledge, you know, a betrayal of love, you know, either with God or with others or, or even betraying ourselves. Uh, but so, so often shame is uh, meant to break us down in such a way uh, that it becomes self-hatred. And in that self-hatred, then we slip into the, the darkness of despondency, a kind of spiritual despair. And uh, this prevents us from experiencing that healing uh, that the, the fathers are talking about and the importance of repentance, that our compunction should draw, always be tied to this movement toward the other, toward God. And perhaps the best gospel parable of this would be the, the story of the prodigal son or of, you know, this loving father who's, you know, watching, scanning the horizon, runs out, embraces, uh, even when the son's uh, uh, contrition is imperfect. You know, part of what draws him back is his desire for food, the comforts of home, and he remember, if he rehearses the little speech, I'll say to my father, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me be one of your servants. And the father does not even listen to it, uh, but immediately calls for him to be clothed and a meal to be prepared. And uh, reflecting upon these things and the Eastern father's view of compunction, I think, is important in order that we don't fall into despair especially uh, when we are struggling with uh, passions, with habitual sins, that it's most easy, I think, in, in those cases to, uh, to lose sight of the mercy of God and to want to give up. Anthony writes, uh, a person can be so focused on avoiding temptation that this person's psychology or demons or something else can constantly bring to mind the thing to be avoided kind of making the temptation always present. Maybe it's an after effect of eating from the tree uh, we were not to eat. 
Uh, yes, you know, I think in the West, we've often described this as concupiscence, uh, a weakened will, but also a darkened intellect that we don't see things with uh, clarity. And so often we will gravitate towards not what is good, but is sinful. And that, that darkness can be so dark that what is evil seems to be good to us and what is good seems to be evil. That our conscience can be so uh, darkened that we lose, lose sight of the truth altogether. And uh, so I think th this is where the evil one is constantly working to try to achieve that. And uh, John mentions it in the coming pages where there are those who actually get to a point where they glory in the sinfulness. They not only take pleasure in it, but will manifest it in a very public fashion and take joy in doing so. And, uh, and there's a real darkness psychologically that takes over there as well, that one's uh, capacity uh, to perceive reality as well as morality with any kind of clarity can be diminished over, over the course of time, the more that we are immersed in the darkness of sin. Okay. Any comments about paragraph 74? This is, uh, you know, I'd mark this one down and highlight it. I think it's an important one to go over and to have clear in one's mind uh, because it will affect, I think, the way that you read other spiritual works, Eastern or Western, and how you hear the teaching of the saints or even how you read the scriptures and the things that Christ says as well. Uh about temptation and uh, about our struggle with sin. Uh, I think it also helps us to look at others, you know, uh, with a sense of compassion, and, and it should, and should help us also to suspend judgment. We don't know where a person is in that spiritual struggle, or what they've been through, or what was lacking in their, for, their spiritual formation, or what really formed their mind and heart. They might have experienced trauma in their life one way or another. And so find themselves in this battle in one place or another. And, you know, this description that John gives is really for the individual and for their spiritual elder, I think, to, to help healing take place, uh, but shouldn't be used on our part as uh, a lens for judging. Okay. Paragraph 75, amongst the more precise and discerning fathers, if, as if that wasn't precise enough, uh, John goes even farther, further, he says, there is mention of a still more subtle notion, something which some of them call a flick of the mind. This is its characteristic. Without passage of time, without word or image, it instantaneously introduces the passion to the victim. There's nothing swifter or more discernible, indiscernible among spirits. It manifests itself in the soul by a simple remembrance, which is instantaneous, independent, inapprehensible, and in some cases, even unknown to the person himself. If anyone, therefore, with the help of mourning has been able to detect such a subtlety, 
he can explain to us how it is possible for a soul by the eye alone, by a mere glance or a touch of the hand or the hearing of a song without any notion or thought to commit a definite sin of impurity. So it's a rather frightening notion uh, that, but it should be humbling for us that a flick of the mind, that something can come to us because of a memory, imagination, something can be triggered by a touch, by a song, something that we see that can stir the passions within us. And so this is why there has to be this constant vigilance and turning toward God, that there can be no pride in the sense that even if we're not aware of anything taking place, that basically what John is saying is that almost in an unconscious fashion, we can find ourselves in the grip of something that begins to move us uh, like, like a passion would. And, uh, and so, it, you know, my first thought was, Lord, have mercy. And I think that's what our response is to be, that it can be like a flash of lightning something that happens so quickly that we are completely unaware of that still affects us. And I think psychologically, we, we know this very well and can understand it, that, uh, and for, perhaps simply because we're used to uh, the common parlance of, of the day, that, that we are triggered by certain things in our life. So a person can have somebody say something to them, something happen at work uh, that triggers an emotion for them and find themselves feeling angry uh, and for one reason or another. And so they might not even be aware of what it was that's brought it about, but nonetheless it emerges. And it's interesting, you know, in psychoanalysis, they, they pick up on that as well, that a person can be on the couch, uh, not looking at the analyst at all. You know, he's look, either has his or her eyes closed or it's on the, your eyes are on the ceiling. So a blank screen. And yet all of a sudden you can find yourself with feelings of anger and even feelings of anger directed toward the analyst. And uh, it's something that's emerging from the depths of the unconscious, from the depths of the heart that has been triggered by something that, that came about through one's free association or the remembrance of something that happened during the day that affected us and gave rise to strong feelings that we weren't aware at the time, but emerged within the analytic session. So what John is saying here is that there's something on the spiritual level that can take place like that as well. So swift that we aren't even aware of it taking place. And unless he says, maybe there's somebody out there who because of the depth of his mourning over his own sin has become ever so aware of the movements of the heart. There's this remembrance of death, of one's own mortality that has heightened one's awareness from moment to moment of, of, of what's taking place internally. Maybe there's someone, he says, who can tell us, you know, how we can possibly be aware of these things and not commit a particular sin. 
and uh, or so as to avoid sin. And uh, and I think it is through this constant mourning, uh, the remembrance of death, or the mourning over our own sinfulness, uh, that uh, allows this to be true. This kind of sensitivity of soul to begin to emerge. A person who's in analysis, for example, over the course of years, say if you're on the couch four or five times a week, you're going to become very aware of the internal narrative that is going on and the shifts in thought or feeling that take place, uh, both within the session, but I think just naturally over the course of time, you become much more aware of your internal state and your interactions with others, what's going on when you're talking to others and why you're saying things in the way that you are, times that you are angry or frustrated. And so you become much more attentive to that. And I think on a spiritual level, the as we enter into this uh, relationship with God through through prayer and through the life of grace, uh, we become, and as we begin to still the thoughts, still the mind and the heart, we become much more aware of what begins to arise from the depths. If you remember, we talked about the fathers describing the heart uh, almost in language that would sound to us as if they're describing the unconscious, the very deepest recesses of who we are as human beings. And in the spiritual life, as we open ourselves to God more and more, and as we become allow ourselves to become vulnerable, those things can begin to emerge in and of themselves or, or uh, in our vulnerability for other reasons uh, uh, that the evil one only knows of because he picks up on patterns of behavior or neg neglectful activities can uh, very swiftly uh, put a thought or idea before us that then uh, triggers uh, a passion within us. And so it is this uh, hesychasm that we are seeking, this stillness, deep internal stillness, where we are listening to God and aided by his grace and the spirit that dwells within us, we can become even attentive to these, uh, these uh, kinds of subtle movements, these flicks of the mind, and even see, see them. Uh, but it really is, I think, the, the, uh, the, the depth of the spiritual life that allows that to emerge. Patrick writes, Father David, can you please clarify the meaning of dispassion in the last sentence, uh, 1574? Is it synonymous with asceticism in this context? No, I think it would be more along the lines of having engaged in the ascetic life that one has freed oneself from the grip of the passions. And so one might still be subject to temptations coming to us from the outside, but not freely giving oneself over to them and not in the grip of habit anymore. And so we're engaged in the struggle fully. Temptations might be coming to us. Thoughts might be coming to us for, from, from ourselves, from the evil one. 
or for any number of sources, but we aren't freely giving ourselves over to them. So th that would be one of the aims of the spiritual life is this dispassion. And it's not a lack of desire. And I think the Father's work to clarify that. It's a passionless passion uh, that we have a, one passion that is our desire for God, our desire to love. And that is what forms and shapes our consciousness and so dispassion becomes that, then passionless passion. We're no longer in the grip of sin, sin, but in the grip of, of love and the desire for God. And so it's really a, only a person who's in that grip, who's so deeply immersed in that love of God that can become aware of these subtle movements of the mind and the heart. Uh, it's a humbling thing. You know, when I first read this paragraph, I thought, goodness sake, you know, this is why we can't for a moment think that we are above uh, or, you know, committing sin or being drawn into temptation or that we don't have to be vigilant. And, uh, you know, this is a great warning, I, I think, for, you know, our generation, because we, we freely I think, expose ourselves to so many things that we think that we are impervious to. And in reality, I think we've become desensitized to them on a certain level because they're part of our culture, the constructs of how we understand the things around us. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we're impervious to what they can do to us just because we've been desensitized to them on some level, constantly exposing ourselves to the violence in movies or watching the violent things that are put on Twitter or YouTube, you know, going on, uh, which just seems to be becoming popular these, these days. Or, um, you know, people getting beat up is what I have in mind. It's, there's a kind of morbid thing going on now in social media. Uh, uh, and or if we're constantly immersed in things that are would really uh, uh, sort of give rise to uh, uh, sensuality uh, within us that we might for a period of time be unmoved by it, but it's simply because we're, we're so deeply exposed to it, but eventually it can take hold of us. And even the, the, the demons will leave us alone for a period of time until uh, the right moment arrives to draw us into a deep fall. Okay. So these are two paragraphs, I think, that are of immense value uh, for understanding the spiritual warfare. And you'll find them described in similar ways within Cassian and within the Philokalia. But I think these two paragraphs of Climacus are two of the clearest uh, paragraphs describing it. So it's really a valuable resource. And again, you know, I think it'll alter the way that you look at the spiritual warfare and, and also alter the way that you read things like the scriptures or other spiritual writers in the sense of picking up what they're alluding to and what they're warning us off of, off of. Okay. Anthony writes, 
but is he saying the flick of the mind uh, is actual moral guilt? How much of this fault, how much is over-focused on the self, be focused too much on this and be too sensitive, and you can go nutty, not being man fully alive. That surely is not good. Our Lord was supremely sensitive to and to good and evil, but he was also self-possessed. It is possible even in the saints went a little self-obsessed and accidentally project that forward to us. It interferes with life to always be aware of every possible ev evil and continually feel guilty. Right, and I think this is why uh, reading some of the modern elders is very helpful too that are rooted in this tradition of saying that our goal is not, and it would be an impossible one, uh, to see these things or uh, to uh, examine the 40,000 or so thoughts that we have during the day. You know, that what gives us the capacity to, to discern the truth is our uh, union and communion with God and allowing uh, the spirit to have free reign within our hearts and to guide and direct us. And so hearing about this, you know, whether it's the multitude of thoughts we have or this flick of the mind, is not meant to throw us into this uh, obsessive compulsive uh, spiral, you know, where we're desperately uh, trying to see these things. It's really our immersion in that relationship with God through prayer and of stilling the mind, of entering into silence and listening to him, that these things lose their capacity to control us, but also that we are able to see the more subtle movements then. If we're listening to God, if we've stilled the mind and the heart, that we're seeking to hear God speak to us in the silence, then certainly we're going to be able to see these movements that take place. But you're right, it isn't meant to leave us, it's not navel-gazing, uh, you know, that there's always this personal uh, personal aspect to this, this, uh, the Christian ascetical and mystical life that it's always directed toward the other, toward God. And we, we don't want to lose sight of that. Uh, Daniel writes, to expand on that question, if a flick of the mind can cast us into sin without any noticeable stimulus, how does one not become troubled? Uh, I think the only way that we don't become troubled at all, which is to live in the peace of Christ and uh, to live in hope, you know, that our God is a God of mercy, you know, to keep before us always the, the cross, the depth of the love that uh, he uh, has sh shown us and also what he gives us in the Holy Eucharist. And again, this is why the saints say leave sin alone, that it isn't turning our minds and our heart toward God, that we are lifted up. And, you know, one of the... Uh, Psalm 126 says that, uh, that God pour pours forth his blessings upon his children while they slumber, while they sleep. 
And so, you know, our confidence in God is so great that, you know, that we know that the depth of his love for us is such that even when we are most vulnerable, when we are sleeping, that he's watching over us, but also pour, pouring forth his blessings upon us. So our confidence is always on the action and the protection of God's grace, but also the means that he's given us, the angels to guard and protect us, that even though we are engaged in this, in this fierce spiritual warfare, that ours should always be the standpoint of hope, not in ourselves, but, but in God. And I think when we begin to become anxious, we, we know that our, our attention has shifted off of God, perhaps onto ourselves, and that's when anxiety begins to emerge. David Swiderski writes, one must quiet the mind to hear the voice of God, who's like a whisper on the wind, while the devil is a constant irritating rattling of the passions. Right. You know, I think the evil one is constantly seeking to agitate, to not draw us to stillness, but to fragment the mind, to keep us distracted and inattentive to what's going on around us, but also inattentive to God. So it's a little bit after 8.30, so that's a lot for one, one evening, uh, and so we'll stop there. Hopefully the recording will come out okay. Uh, otherwise, we'll have to redo this group over again next week. Okay. So why don't we close, as always, with our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.